Or you guys can turn to Genesis 22. We're looking at Abraham's moment of victory in his life, Genesis 22 today. So let me ask you, what kind of person makes a good hero? If you were just to, to empty your mind and think, what, what does a hero look like? What, what kind of person is a good paradigm for a hero? What, what would that person look like to you? This summer, Julie and I went to a number of movies. One of our favorites was Superman. Really enjoyed the movie Superman. It revolves around a guy who is exactly what you would expect of a hero, right? That, that's exactly what, what a hero looks like. He's really strong. He's brave. He's courageous. He can fly. He's indestructible. Let's just be honest. He's really good looking. Exactly what you would expect of a hero. This is Hollywood's hero. Hollywood likes to choose its heroes from among extraordinary people. So you have indestructible Superman, billionaire Bruce Wayne, genetically modified Spider-Man. Hollywood loves to choose extraordinary people and make heroes out of them. But the Bible does exactly the opposite. In the Bible, God does not choose his heroes from among extraordinary people. Think about who are the great heroes heroes of the Bible. We got men like Moses, who was an exiled murderer turned stuttering shepherd. That God then uses to become the second greatest savior of all of human history. This guy has no qualifications to be a great man. Or, Or think about Ruth. Ruth was a poor young widow from the wrong side of town. She was not even an Israelite. She had nothing to her name, and yet God uses her to change the course of Israel's history. Or think about David, great King David. Well, well, how did he start life? As a forgotten runt who tended sheep. When the prophet Samuel came to his dad, Jesse, and said, show me all your sons, Jesse didn't even remember to invite David. God loves to choose his heroes from among completely ordinary, weak, small, broken, poor people. When you look at the heroes of the Bible, it reminds me of of an expression that my dad used all the time growing up. I heard it over and over again. Whenever I had a bad day or I did poorly at something or I failed at something, which if it was athletics or popularity or girls was all the time, like all of middle school, every day I'd come home and my dad would say to me his favorite expression, Blake, God loves to hit a home run with a crooked stick. That's what God does all the way through the Bible. From beginning to end, God loves to hit home runs with crooked sticks. He really doesn't prefer the great Louisville slugger. Doesn't want to use that. No, he loves to use crooked sticks. People who are broken, people who are weak, people who are afraid, people who are small in the eyes of the world, those are the people who God loves to use as heroes. Abraham fits that bill really well. Abraham fits this model. He was a crooked stick. Let's remind ourselves for a minute. What do we know about Abraham by this point in his story? Well, Abraham did not begin well. He was an idolater who, when we meet him in Genesis 11, is living in an idolatrous city called Ur. And in Ur of the Chaldeans, they worship the moon god. So Abraham grew up worshiping the moon god. But but God spoke to him. He called Abraham to leave his idolatrous past behind and come to the promised land where God would bless him. That's hard for Abraham. It takes him many years to fully obey God. He stutters. He waits. Finally, he gets to the promised land. And what happens next? At the end of chapter 12, you might recall, he gets to the promised land and there's a famine. 
There's no food. And so he freaks out. He gives in to fear and he runs away. Abraham runs to Egypt in fear and then he gives his wife away as his sister in fear, almost loses her to Pharaoh. God has to step in, miraculously rescue Abraham. And then God begins to work in Abraham's life and to grow within this man faith. That's the the next set of stories in Abraham's life. He begins to grow in faith. He takes some forward steps. Chapter 13, he separates from Lot. Chapter 14, he courageously rescues Lot from invading armies. Chapter 15, he believes God's promise that God will give him a son. And God says that is righteousness that you believed. And God makes a covenant with Abraham. So things are going really well. They're looking up in Abraham's life. He's growing in faith until chapter 16. And he backslides. He backslides into doubt. Chapter 16, he and Sarah get impatient waiting for God to give them the son that he promised. And so they have to plan. And Abraham sleeps with Sarah's maid, Hagar, has a a son through her, and that doesn't end up working well for them. The whole family falls apart because Abraham gave in to doubt. He does it again in chapter 20. Chapter 20, there's a powerful king in the land named Abimelech. Abraham becomes afraid of him, afraid he's going to kill Abraham because of his wife, Sarah. So once again, Abraham gives away Sarah and almost loses her to a king. When you look at Abraham's life, what you see is that the man takes three steps forwards and then two steps back. He's a lot like us. He, he grows in faith and then he fails in faith. He grows in obedience and then he fails to obey. Forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards. The guy is up and down. He's, he's a crooked stick. He's broken. And, and when we look at his life, when we see his forward progress and then his backsliding, I think it gives us comfort. So I don't know about you, but when I look at Abraham, I see myself. Because that's me. I hope that I'm making some forward progress, but then I also see along the way I take some steps back. I grow in faith and then I fail in faith. I grow in obedience and then I fail to obey. Back and forth, back and forth. I'm just like Abraham. So that's why this morning's story is so joyous to me. It is so encouraging to me because God takes this crooked stick, this broken man, this failing man, and hits an incredible grand slam home run through him. In Genesis 22, it's actually the most important story in all of the Abraham story. What happens in Genesis 22, this incredible home run that God hits through Abraham, Abraham's great victory in life, this is actually the event that Christians, Jews, and Muslims still celebrate when they think about Abraham. All the great three monotheistic religions look back at this moment, Genesis 22, as the great victory in Abraham's life. So let's look at this home run that God hits through Abraham. It actually begins in the previous chapter, chapter 21. God blesses Abraham with a son. Look at chapter 21 with me. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God has spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So chapter 21 begins with the best day in all of Abraham's life. For Abraham and Sarah, this was day number one, best day ever. Abraham is 100 when he has a son. How old is Sarah? Well, she's 10 years younger than him. She's 90 years old. When she has this boy. And if, if you'll recall the story, this is her first child because they are an infertile couple. And, and in our day and age, in modern times, infertility is really painful for couples going through it. But in the ancient world, it was worse. It was a curse in the ancient world. 
If you didn't have a child, your life in the eyes of society was a complete and utter failure. Doesn't matter how rich you are, doesn't matter how powerful you are, if you do not have a child to pass those things on to, you are a complete and utter failure in the eyes of the world. They were cursed. And so Sarah and Abraham, their life was bitter for them. Despite how wealthy they were, despite how blessed they were, they didn't have a child, and that was all that mattered in the ancient world. And so year after year, they grieved their infertility and they pleaded with God for a child. And God showed up and said, I will give you a child, but you got to wait a while. And had to wait year after year, decade after decade, until Sarah is 90 years old, way past childbearing age. And then God does a miracle. He gives them this child, this son named Isaac. I think when you look at this day in in Abraham's life, if you're reading the story of Abraham and you don't know what's coming next, you would assume this is the end of the story. This is a happy ending. That's what we want in all of our stories, a happy ending right off into the sunset together. This is that moment for Abraham and Sarah. They finally get everything that they had hoped for in life. The thing they had waited 80 years as a married couple to have, they finally have a child. So you would expect, this is the the happy ending. This is the moment that we had been waiting for. Everything looks great. It looks like our happy ending until 15 years after Isaac is born, God shows up again. God shows up with one final fatal plot twist. God shows up to test Abraham. Look with me, chapter 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. God shows up and puts Abraham to the test. And that teaches us our first lesson about greatness, about becoming a hero in God's story for the human race. The first lesson of greatness that we learn from Abraham is that greatness is revealed by testing. You can't have greatness without testing. You can't have greatness without a trial. So God shows up to test Abraham. And we need to be clear, this incredibly hard, painful thing that that is asked of Abraham, it's not the result of sin. This is not judgment. This is not punishment. This is not the result of evil. This is explicitly called a test, a test from God. And that forces us to ask, why would God test Abraham? Why does God test Abraham? us? Why does God bring trials in your life? Well, I'll tell you what's not the reason. God doesn't test us because he enjoys seeing us in pain. God is not sadistic, nor is God uncaring or unfeeling about the pain that we suffer in life. How do I know that? Well, I look at Jesus. Who's Jesus? Jesus is God in human flesh, son of God walking around in human flesh. And I think to that story that you've read about in the gospels, where Jesus' really good friend Lazarus dies. And Lazarus' sisters are just weeping over it. They're just torn up. And, And Jesus sees Mary and Martha weeping, and what does he do? What does God do when he sees them in pain? He weeps. He weeps. God doesn't like pain. God isn't uncaring or unfeeling when he sees us in pain. No, he weeps with us. He grieves with us. So God does not enjoy seeing you in pain. That's never the reason that he brings trials or tests into your life. He hates putting us in pain. So why would God be willing to allow us to experience pain when he doesn't enjoy pain in our lives? Well, because God knows that the results 
of a trial outweigh the pain of a trial? If you respond to a trial rightly, the reward of a, of a test that is past outweighs all the pain that it causes you. In particular, God knows that there's two things that, that a trial in your life can produce. If you respond rightly to the trial, there's, there's two things that make that pain worthwhile. Number one, God knows this trial will show your faith. This trial will reveal the strength of your faith. Peter talks about this, 1 Peter 1. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is tests, it is trials that that show the genuineness, the strength of our faith. When I read that passage, it reminds me when I studied material science here at A&M, some of you are in that program right now. How do you, yeah, well, it's, the lab was really hard. How do you know how strong a material is? How do you know how strong something is? Well, you got to test it. You don't know until you push on it or pull on it or bend it or try to break it. You don't know how strong a material is until you put it under a test. So it is with human beings. You don't know how strong we are. You don't know how strong our faith is until you test us. So a trial, a test, it is designed to show, to demonstrate, to reveal the strength of your faith. Now reveal it to who? To God? No. God knows all things. He doesn't need a test to see your faith. The test is designed to reveal your faith, first of all, to you. The test, the trial reveals the strength of your faith to you. You can see where your faith is strong and you can see where your faith is is weak and needs work. So a trial, it it demonstrates, it reveals the strength of your faith to you. It also reveals the strength of your faith to the world. To the world. What do we want the world to see in us? We want the world to see the, the value of faith. We want the world to see that it is reasonable, that it is worthwhile to trust in Jesus Christ. But if we live only an easy life, then they will never see the value of faith. If your whole life is spent kicking back on the beach, then what value is your faith? The value of your faith, the strength of your faith, the worthiness of your faith is revealed in the test, in the trial. When you walk in joy, when you live in love in the midst of pain, then the world sees the value of faith. So why does God put you in trials and tests? First of all, because it shows our faith to us and to the world we live in. Second reason, second reward of a trial that makes the pain of a trial worth it is that a trial grows our faith. Not only does it show faith, but it grows faith. James talks about that in James 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When you respond rightly to a trial, to a test, that is what grows your faith and produces endurance that leads to maturity. When you look at that, it's basically exactly what is happening when you go to the gym and work out. If you want to get healthy, you go to the gym, you want to lose fat, you want to burn fat off or build muscle, well, you have to experience some discomfort, right? If your workout is totally relaxed and chilling and easy and and doesn't hurt you at all, then you're totally wasting your time. 
Fat only burns off, muscle only builds when you are uncomfortable. When you are pushing through the pain and challenging yourself and stretching yourself, that's how the body grows. Well, that's exactly how faith grows. Faith does not grow in the easy times of life. Faith doesn't grow on the beach. Faith grows when you have a really hard day and then you go home to really whiny kids and your bills are stacking up and you are one dirty diaper away from losing your mind. That's when faith grows. Faith grows in the hard times of life. God doesn't bring trials into your life because he enjoys seeing you in pain or doesn't care about your pain. He brings trials because he knows if you'll respond rightly, the pain is worth it because the pain of a trial will show your faith and grow your faith. That's why it's worth it. So now that we've talked about why God would bring this test into Abraham's life, to show Abraham's faith, to grow Abraham's faith, now let's talk about the test itself. This particular trial that God brings into Abraham's life. There's a few things I want you to observe about this test that God reveals in verse 2. First, it follows a spiritual high. In Abraham's life, things were going really well right before God showed up. First of all, he had a son whom he waited his whole life for. He has Isaac. Uh, But more than that, more recently than that, while Isaac is now an adolescent, things were going really great for Abraham. Spiritually, he's on a high. Look with me at the previous chapter, chapter 21, verse 22. Verse 22. Now it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. Let me explain. This probably doesn't seem like a significant thing. Abimelech is a king, king of all the land that Abraham's in. So he's the guy in charge. Phicol is his commander, the commander of his army. Abraham, in contrast, is not a king and has no army. So just ask yourself for a moment, if you're comparing these two men, Abimelech, a king with an army, Abraham, not a king, no army, which of them would you expect to go to the other one and ask, please be nice to me? You'd expect Abraham to do it. Abraham to go to the king, but it's exactly the opposite. The king takes his commander and comes on their knees to Abraham, hey, please be nice to us because we know you're not a king, we know you don't have an army, but you got a God who does crazy things through you. Everything you touch turns to gold. You can't be defeated, so please be nice. Abraham is incredibly blessed. He is undefeatable. Everything is going well for him. That leads Abraham to great worship. Not only is he blessed by God, but he's walking with God. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So Abraham is walking with God, obeying God, blessed by God, enjoying God. Everything is going great, and then, bam, the trial comes. That is how life works. Those of you who are my age or older, you know that. It's right in the midst of everything going rosy that the wheels come off. And the trial comes and you are tested. Those of you who are younger than us and things are really going great, you just need to know. If things are going great means God's about to bring a trial. So that's how life works this side of heaven. Usually it is a spiritual high that comes right before an incredible test that tries us and stretches us. That's how life works. So this, this test, it follows a time of spiritual high. That's the first thing to notice. Second thing, it is completely unexpected. Completely unexpected. God had never asked a parent to sacrifice his child. Completely unprecedented. 
Now, what does Abraham know about God and about offerings, about what God is talking about here, burnt offering? Well, at this point in human history, Abraham knows that the right way for humans to respond to God is through worship. Abraham knows that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to worship God. That's why he builds altars everywhere he goes. And Abraham knows that the right way to worship God is to sacrifice to God whatever is best in your life. You're to give to God whatever's best as worship. Abraham had seen that all the way back to the beginning of human history, Cain and Abel. Remember Abel's offering that brings God's blessing, his approval, Genesis 4.4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. In the ancient world, that which was first was best. So the first of your livestock, the first of your harvest, the first of whatever is best and therefore it belongs to God. So, so Abraham knows that God should be worshipped with that which is best. That which is best belongs to him. So Abraham knew Isaac belongs to God. But God had never told any parent to give their child back to God. It's completely unexpected. Abraham never seen anything like this before. What's more is this is not just any son that Abraham has. This is Isaac, whom God himself had had prophesied about. Back in Genesis chapter 17, God had said, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. What do you notice at the end of that verse? Isaac's going to have offspring. He's going to have kids. That's going to be kind of hard if Isaac is dead. This command, it didn't make any sense to Abraham. Abraham said, God, you've never commanded this before. And this particular boy is the boy you said will have countless descendants. So what is going on, God? I don't understand. Often God will call us to obey a command that we do not understand. It does not make sense to us. It goes against the wisdom that we have learned in this world. God calls us to to love our enemies. Love your enemy when everything in you says fight your enemy. Are you kidding? God calls us to give sacrificially to those in need. Are you kidding? The world tells me take all the money you have and save it for a rainy day. God tells me to go share the gospel with those who haven't heard it. Go to Africa. Go to unsaved places and share the gospel. Are you kidding me? That seems completely unreasonable. Often God calls us and challenges us to do things that don't make sense to us, that seem unreasonable to us. And the question is, in the midst of an unexpected, seemingly unreasonable command, will you obey anyways? Abraham was given an unexpected, seemingly unreasonable command. That's the second thing we notice about this test. The third thing we notice about this test, and the most important, is it is unimaginably painful. I can't imagine what Abraham must have felt. Can't fathom it. I have a boy, Luke. He's four years old. I can't imagine the thought of losing my son, of my son dying. But more than that, I can't imagine being the one who takes his life. And yet, that's what Abraham's being told to do. Your son's going to die, and you're the one who's going to do it. I can't fathom what, what he's called to do here. I can't fathom the pain of this command. It's just absolutely incredible. I can't imagine if God called me to, to do this to my boy. And as I've wrestled with this command this week, as I've let this passage meditate in my heart and, and, and stew there, what has pricked me, what's been uncomfortable for me is the realization what this test reveals to me is that in God's quest to make us holy, there is nothing in our lives off limits to him. There's nothing in your life that God won't touch. 
Nothing in your life that God won't take away if that's what it takes to make you holy. He is God, he is king, he is creator. He does not respect our limitations. God, you can take this much, but no more. No, I'm God. I will take anything. I will do whatever it takes to make you holy. There is nothing off limits, not your job, not your house, not your wealth, not your spouse, not your kids. None of it is off limits to God. Now that's a really terrifying thought until you remember who this God is, that he calls himself Father, that he is the most loving father you have ever had, that he loves you infinitely, that he works all things for your good, that he is always faithful to you. That's why you can trust this God with that which is most precious to you. Even your kids, you can trust your kids to that kind of God because he's a loving and faithful father. When we look at this test that God puts in front of Abraham, it's hard to fathom how hard it was. How incredibly difficult. I can't imagine what was going through Abraham's mind as he's taking Isaac to the altar. Incredibly difficult command. And this incredibly difficult command, it forces Abraham to make a choice. Boil it down. It's a very simple choice. Abraham must choose between what he wants most in life, a son, and what he needs most in life to obey God. Very simple choice. Choose between what you want most, what you love most, what you want to hold on to most, your son, or what you need most to trust and obey me. Abraham must choose. So let's see how Abraham does with this test. Look with me, chapter 22, starting in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw a place from the distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Abraham chooses to obey. He chooses what he needs most in life to trust and obey over what he wants most in life to keep his son. Abraham chooses to obey, and in his obedience, you learn the second lesson about true greatness in life. True greatness requires extraordinary obedience. That's how you become great, through great obedience. This is extraordinary obedience, absolutely incredible obedience. I want to show you a couple things about this obedience. First of all, notice that Abraham's obedience is immediate. Look at verse 3 again. Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. He gets the command at night, and then he wakes up at the crack of dawn and immediately begins to obey. That wouldn't have been me. First of all, I don't like the crack of dawn. Uh, Second, If I got this command, I think I would sit around for a little while. Maybe I'm going to pray about this for a month and see if God changes his mind. Maybe I'm going to get some other opinions on this, but not Abraham. His obedience is immediate. As soon as God commands, he is on his way 
towards Mount Moriah. So his, his obedience is immediate. Second thing, it is unhesitating. Did you notice verse four, how long did it take between the command and the act? Three days. This would have been easier if the command was immediately followed by the act. But no, Abraham had three days and three nights to stew on it. He goes with his boy on this journey. Just think about it for a moment. It's like a camping trip with your son. You're going from one place to another, camping out every night. It's like the camping trip from hell. The worst camping trip ever, because the whole way, Abraham knows how this camping trip ends, with him killing his own boy. I I can't fathom what that would have been like. Three days and three nights traveling with your son on a camping trip, knowing you will be the one to take his life. I think the nights would have been worse. Nights, you're sitting around a campfire looking up at the stars, and, and every time Abraham would see those stars, what would he think about? Remember Genesis 15, what did God say? I will give you descendants as numerous as the stars. And Abraham's thinking, well, here's my one. And it took you like a hundred years to give him to me. And now you're going to take him away. Really? That's, that's how this works? I can't fathom the struggle going on in Abraham, the pain. And yet Abraham is unhesitating. Day and night he marches forward, takes his son, goes up the mountain, builds an altar, binds Isaac, and picks up the knife. Unflinching obedience incredible, radical obedience. And you look at that, and if you're like me, you say, how is this possible? I read Genesis 22, and I think, it is kind of hard to believe that a man could obey that difficult of a command so unflinchingly. I can't fathom it. How could he obey? Well, fortunately, God tells us, God gives us a commentary later in the Bible that tells us what was going through Abraham's mind when he picked up the knife. It's in the book of Hebrews. God tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Notice what's going through Abraham's mind. The belief That even if God has to raise Isaac from the dead, God will do whatever it takes to fulfill his promises. And that reveals to us a third great lesson about true greatness in life, true greatness, this, this great obedience that God requires is built on great faith. Great obedience is built on great faith. That's always how obedience works. Obedience doesn't happen in a vacuum. You obey God because you trust God. You obey him deeply because you trust him deeply. Abraham had great faith in God. He believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. You actually, you saw that in Genesis 22 because what does Abraham say to the servants in verse five? Did you catch that? Me and the boy, we're gonna go up the mountain and then we will return. Even then, before going up the mountain, Abraham believed I'm going to kill my son, and then God must raise him from the dead because we're both coming back down. Incredible faith. It's even more incredible when you realize Abraham lived in 2000 BC, 2000 years before Lazarus rose from the dead, 2000 years before Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, when Abraham lived, no one had ever risen from the dead, and God had never said anything about raising people from the dead. Abraham had no verses to quote. He had no examples to look at. He just unbidden arrives at the conclusion in his mind that since God is creator and holds life in his hands, he can raise Isaac from the dead, even though he's never talked about that. Incredible faith. 
that empowers Abraham to obey. Radical obedience is always built on radical faith. Will you trust God enough to obey even when the command does not make sense to you? You can't wrap your mind around it. It goes against everything you've ever learned from the world. Will you trust him enough to obey? Will you trust God enough to obey even when the command seems impossible? You are at the limits of your willpower. You don't know how you're possibly going to obey again. Will you still trust him and obey? Will you trust God enough to obey when the cost seems too high to bear? When obedience is going to cost your job or your money or your friend or your boyfriend or girlfriend, will you trust God's goodness and grace deeply enough to obey even when the cost is too high to bear? Radical obedience requires radical faith. Will you trust God? That's the issue. That's why we obey, because we trust. Why we disobey, because we don't trust. Obedience is built on faith. Abraham believed God. He trusted God to raise Isaac from the dead. And that incredible faith empowered Abraham to obey in the greatest test of his life. So let's look at what God does next. Abraham steps up and, and obeys God in this incredibly difficult test. And then God shows up and he teaches us lesson number four. Great faith results in great reward. God responds to great faith with great reward. Let's look and see what God does next. Look with me, starting again in verse 10. Let's reread verse 10. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. God shows up, and the first thing he does is he delivers Isaac. God protects Isaac. He spares Isaac by providing this substitute, this ram caught in the thicket that can be offered in the place of Isaac. So God redeems Isaac. He delivers Isaac. And and when we read that about how God delivers Isaac, that helps us to answer the question you will usually get for Genesis 22 from an unbeliever. So someone who doesn't believe in God, doesn't take the Bible literally, they will ask a very good question. When they read Genesis 22, they will ask you, how could a loving God tell a father to kill his own son? Are you kidding me? It's like the most immoral thing I've ever heard of. How could a loving God tell a dad to kill his own boy? Well, now we have the answer. These verses give us two ways that we respond to that objection. The first thing that we tell people is Isaac's life was never in danger. God knew where this story was going. God already had the ram in place before they ever arrived. God is sovereign. He is powerful. He never intended Abraham to go through with the act. He waited until the last possible moment so that the test was complete. But Isaac's life was never in danger. God protected him. God spared Isaac. Why did God protect Isaac? Because, as we learn explicitly later in the Bible, the one true God, the God of the Bible, is not the kind of God who wants parents to kill their kids. That's not ever what God wants. That's actually false gods who do that. So we learn later that God doesn't want any parent to kill his child. There is, in fact, only one parent in the Bible who kills his child. Who is that? Not Abraham. God. It's God. It's only one father who has to slay his own son. God the Father. God spares 
Isaac. God spares Abraham's son, but he did not spare his own son. You want to know what's really ironic here, what's really amazing. Where does this event happen in Genesis 22? You get a name, Mount Moriah. That name is changed later in the Bible to Jerusalem. Same mountain, you can go there today. In other words, Isaac and Jesus walked up the same mountain, but only one of them came down alive. Only Isaac. Isaac was spared. That was always God's intention. God was never going to let Isaac die. But God was going to kill his own son. Jesus, the willing sacrifice, who went up the mountain knowing what was about to happen, who went up to the cross, why? For us. For us. He willingly sacrificed his life for us. Paul talks about that. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, he spared Abraham's son, but not his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Or as John talks about in the verse, should have memorized now because I quote it all the time, John 3.16, for God so loved who? The world, us, that he gave his only son. Abraham had one son who was spared. God had one son who was not. Gave up his only son, only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Mount Moriah, this event in Genesis 22, it's foreshadowing. It's hinting to us about what it will cost God to set us free from sin. That's the point. God didn't send Isaac up there because he liked seeing Abraham in pain. No, he sent Isaac up there so that the human race would see ahead of time, this is what it will take to set you free from sin. Not Isaac. I'm going to spare Isaac. I'm going to send my own son. He's going to willingly go up and die in your place so that you can be forgiven and have eternal life. That's what we call the gospel. The good news of what Jesus did on Mount Moriah 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years after Abraham, Jesus took the knife. He took the punishment we deserve for our sin and then rose from the dead and offers us eternal life as a free gift. That's what Genesis 22 is about, pointing us towards Jesus. So that's how you respond to that question. How could a loving God tell a dad to kill his own son? Never his intention. It was his son who would die. So the first thing that God does as a reward for Abraham's obedience is he delivers his son. Second thing he does is he rewards Abraham with an oath. Look with me at verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God repeats the promises that he had given to Abraham for many years, but this time he does something different. He swears. First time God swears in the whole Bible. He swears an oath on his own name. What he's doing is staking his own reputation on his guarantee to fulfill all of the promises to Abraham. And why does God swear on his name to fulfill those promises? Because Abraham obeyed. Because Abraham obeyed. It's fascinating. From this point on in the Bible, every time the Abrahamic covenant, these incredible promises, pass from one generation to the next, God says, it's because your dad obeyed. It's because Abraham. So it goes to Isaac in Genesis 26, and God says it's because your dad obeyed. It goes to Jacob, because Abraham obeyed. 
From this point on, the whole history of the nation of Israel is built upon the obedience of Abraham. His incredible obedience changed the world for the better. It changed the course of human history because this man obeyed. God hit an incredible home run through Abraham in Genesis 22. Changed the course of history, made the world a better place when he raised up this crooked stick and grew him to the point of extraordinary obedience. When you look at the life of Abraham, I think it proves to us that God can indeed hit a home run through a crooked stick if we will trust and obey. That's the issue. If we will trust and obey, God can do great things through us. Now, what does the world say is the way to greatness? How do you become great according to the world? Well, you're going to need great talent, or you're going to need great wealth, or you're going to need great connections, or great skills, or great looks. One of those five things. No. All that's a lie. None of that is true greatness. None of that lasts into the next life. There is only one way to be great in this life and the next, and it comes through faith and obedience. Trust God and obey, and he will hit a home run through your life that changes the world for now and eternity. I'm assuming that none of you want to live a mediocre life. You want to live a great life. You want to do great things that make the world a better place. You want to glorify God and grow his kingdom. The only way to do that is by trusting and obeying. So let's make this practical for a moment. Some of you in this room are facing a once-in-a-lifetime Genesis 22 kind of test. Maybe your doctors just told you that you got cancer, or your spouse has cancer, or your child has cancer. And your world is upside down right now. You are reeling under that diagnosis. Well, right now you face a test. Test just like Genesis 22. Will you choose in the midst of your pain and fear to say, blessed be the name of the Lord? Will you you praise God in the midst of your suffering or will you give in to to bitterness and self-pity and anger? That's your choice, your opportunity to hit a home run. Some of you have a marriage that's falling apart right now. Your marriage is falling apart. Your spouse doesn't even want to be in the same room with you. You have no idea how to fix your marriage. You don't even know how to get started fixing your marriage. You face one of those once-in-a-lifetime Genesis 22 moments. Will you choose to love and serve your spouse even if they hate you for it? Even if the marriage still falls apart and they leave you, will you still choose to love them and forgive them? That's your test. And for most of us, we're not facing today a Genesis 22 kind of once-in-a-lifetime test. We're just facing those everyday trials that dominate life, like, like the trial where you go to work and you have a really hard day. You run from meeting to meeting. You don't come anywhere close to getting your to-do list done. You are stressed, you are tired, and then you come home to whiny, disobedient children. And it takes all of your patience not just to set them out the door and lock it. You just are desperately trying to get to bedtime. And finally, you and your spouse, you get them into bed. It is finally nighttime. And all you want to do is sit on the couch and watch TV and speak to no one. You want no one to touch you, no one to talk to you. And then your spouse comes to you and says, honey, can we talk? And in that moment, you face a choice. You face a test. And I say you because it never happens to us. Our kids are never whiny or disobedient. <laughs> no, this, is, this is all the time for Julie and I both. What are you going to do in that moment? When your spouse needs you, they need compassion from you. They need understanding from you. They need you to engage. And you are at the end of your rope. All you want to do is watch TV and tune out. You face a test. 
Will you trust God in that moment enough to surrender your rights to entertainment and relaxation? Will you trust God in that moment enough to obey when you are beyond your limits? Will you trust God enough to give sacrificially to your spouse? If you will do that day after day, trusting and obeying, even in the small tests and trials of life, then God will do something extraordinary through you that will echo in this life and into the next. That's what trust and obedience will do. It will make a great man or woman of you. You will never be forgotten in the annals of God's people if you will trust and obey. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we come to you weak, broken, afraid, and on our knees. Lord, we are weak people, so how grateful we are that you are a God who is not bound by our limits. You are a God who is able to do extraordinary things through weak, ordinary, common people like us. Thank you, God, that you have the power to save us. Thank you that you have the power to grow us and heal us and use us to do extraordinary things. So first, Father, we pray that you would grow our faith. Help us to believe that you can hit a home run through our lives. I pray that we would believe that you can do extraordinary things through us, that we would believe that that you can make us into a hero of the faith. I pray, Father, that each person in this room would believe that, that there is no pain in their past, there is no sin that they have fallen to that disqualifies them from being used by you. Second, Lord, we pray that you would grow our trust that we would trust you enough to obey even when the command seems impossibly hard, even when we seem too tired to obey again, even when we don't fully understand the command or when we can't bear the price of the command. I pray, Father, that we would be willing to trust your wisdom, your love, your power, and in that moment choose to obey. And Father, finally, we surrender our lives to you. Father, we just say to you right now, please do whatever it takes. Take away whatever you must to grow us in holiness. Lord, we confess, we acknowledge the truth that nothing in our lives is beyond your reach, is beyond your touch. So we pray, Father, do whatever it takes to grow us and make us more like your son. We pray that our lives would be fully conformed to his image so that we might fully glorify him. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Men, I'll see you at the retreat next weekend.